following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. You know, it's awesome on first Sundays to see the youth. You see Natalie up here leading worship, and we have Kennedy and Christian, just to see how God's lifting up some of the young people and then just transforming them into future leaders. I think that's just a blessing. That's one of the things that uh, is a testament to Pastor Brian and Christy and just their vision and really allowing God to build up our youth. That's always been like a... I've been here for like 12 years, pretty close to it, and... uh, that's always been one of the focal points of this church. So I think that's a testament to you guys and to God's glory. Anyway, we are in the book of Revelation. And before we get started this morning, I do want to make a quick disclaimer. Because uh, Valley Metro Church is a Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is a uh, pre-tribulation dispensationalist teaching church, and which is chapter, basically chapter 4 to the end is something that hasn't happened yet, because it's the rapture and then everything that follows that. I'm just giving you a snippet because we're short on time. I personally do not hold that view. So this morning... Uh, I'm going to come at it a little bit differently, and as I have no desire to uh, usurp Pastor Brian's teaching or anything else, we had a conversation this week, because I was ready to not teach, because I didn't want to have a different or bring confusing ideas or anything, and after talking with him, we thought it was a good thing, because then Revelation is a book that, you know, it's like uh, chapter 5 when... John's writing about the myriad upon myriad of angels that are in heaven, meaning that there's countless angels up there. The interpretation of Revelation through the years has brought countless interpretations. And uh, my interpretation is called a a spiritual view, which basically says that uh, Revelation is more about symbols and analogies about the church and how we suffer from the first century when John was writing and how that affected the church at that time and then how we apply it today. But uh, yeah, I'm all millennialist as opposed to uh, premillennialist or postmillennial or just... So anyway, enough confusion on that. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, as I've said... Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as I've stated before, though, I'm anything but a scholar when it comes to eschatology. That has never been my main focus of study. I'm kind of about the here and the now. But uh, I will give you what I have kind of come to, to understand at this moment, and it may change. It probably will change through the years or get refined in one way or another. But I encourage each one of you guys to open the Bible, study it, read it, 
and come to your conclusion as you have studied the Scriptures. Because your faith is your faith. It's not what I preach. It's not what Pastor Brian preaches. But it's what you put into it and what you take out of the Scriptures. So, that's that. And Second uh, Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that's the groundwork for every book that's in the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every book of the Bible. And most assuredly, the New Testament letters are such. And it's with that purpose that I come to Revelation. And it was written to the church in the first century when the church was first being persecuted by the Jews. They were coming at them. Saul was out trying to completely annihilate the church. And then you had Nero coming up in the 60s. And then at the time of John's writing, you had Domitian, who again was looking to annihilate the Christian church. So they were under constant attack. And John's writing this book, and he's saying, well, how do we maintain an attitude of worship as Christians? And in this book, it ultimately shows us the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ over Satan, and it gives us hope and strength, first to those whom John wrote, and then to us as we read it and we live out our life. And I have to say that uh, this past week, I truly wrestled over these two chapters, 8 and 9, and how to, to put it together. I changed what I was doing probably three or four times. And yesterday, the Lord kind of cemented a, a, a way and as we're going through this. And as much as we look at this, I, I kind of see how these two chapters in particular, I equate them a little bit with the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, you can go to the very last verse of the book, and it says that they did what was right in their own eyes. And it kind of just tells you, God did so many things in bringing about deliverance for the Jews, raising judges constantly, but yet they'd fall behind. And you go to the last part, and that tells you the whole thing. They did what was right in their own eyes. And what I want to do this morning, as we go through uh, chapters 8 and 9, is go to chapter 9 and read the last two verses first, and then we'll go back. Well, this is after the, the sixth of the seven trumpets. The seventh will come later. But in verse 20 of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. For they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. 
So this is the end result after he delivers these plagues, these, these judgments on mankind. And this is the state of mankind. This is the heart of man, the inhabitants of the earth, who are not the worshipers of God. But rather they are the lovers of themselves, idolaters, immoral workers of iniquity. This is condition isn't just at that time, is it? It's, it's since the beginning of time. The day of Noah, the world was so blackened with sin, God wished he had never created man. And he flooded the earth and saved but eight. Noah, his wife, and his three boys and their wives. And they were in the desert coming out of Egypt, and you had a group that was sinful, and they came against Moses, and therefore they were coming against God and God's design for the nation of Israel. And God wiped them out because of their sin condition. In the New Testament, we read from different writers about the condition of man's heart apart from the saving grace of our Lord. In Romans 1, Paul paints a picture of this world. And he says, starting in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and engaged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of the corruptible man and of birds, of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. And a couple of verses later, he continues on and says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, murder, deceit, malice, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says this, This I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles or the unbelievers also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. These letters were written some 25 years before John wrote Revelation. And you look at the world today, we can see that. We see the progressive ideology is to eradicate God from society. They have hardened themselves to a life without God. They do not want God. And there is nothing that seems to open them up to understanding God. They refuse to. As he says, they've hardened their hearts. They've become callous. It's, you get calluses on your hands. It's just hardened skin. 
And he says their hearts have been hardened. John says in spite of all the judgments that God has enacted on people, they are so calloused of heart that they refuse to repent and instead attack those who profess to believe in God. While Romans 1 is a stark picture of the wickedness of the first century, we can see where it is alive today. And how do we, as believers, live today? Because we are under attack. We do not have the Roman Empire pulling us out of our houses and and dragging us out and, and lighting us on fire as Nero did, but yet we are under attack. We are in constant attack emotionally, physically, spiritually. What is it that gives us the ability to sustain in this lifetime, which allows us to be full of hope, to have joy, the unspeakable joy, as Peter says? Well, if we go to the beginning of these two chapters in chapter 8, And let's read the first five verses. Verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And... And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed pearls of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." When we're looking at 8.1, this gives us the answer of how we combat evil. Eight one says that they bring and they break the seventh seal and then there's silence in heaven. And then all of a sudden he kind of breaks away and talks about trumpets being given to angels and then he comes back and he's connecting. And if we take 8.1 and then you put it with verses 3 through 5, it gives us a wonderful picture of the power of prayer. Saintly prayer. Prayer that rises up from a holy church seeking to see God's justice upon a sinful world. A couple months ago, we went through the book of Habakkuk on a Sunday. And that was his very cry. How long must I look at the iniquity and the injustice of the ungodly? How long do we have to do this before you enact your justice, God? And if you look back a couple of chapters, that's what the martyrs were saying. How long do we have to wait? Same prayer. How long do we have to suffer injustice? Our prayer ought to be 
to bring about the glory of God. That's what, that's what Habakkuk's prayer was. That was the martyr's prayer. That the glory of God would shine. That His purpose, His nature would rise above all the iniquity, all the filth, all the dirt that was being presented. Their desire is that the glory of God shine. That the rule of God was by, by which everybody would live. What is it about our prayer? How are we praying? Jesus said in John, what he goes, he goes, if you ask anything in my name, it will be granted to you. And that's where most people stop. And they say, oh, Lord, you know, I just want a new house. I want a new car. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need money. I need this. I'm asking in your name. Why am I not getting it? Well, go to the rest of the verse. Ask anything in my name. It will be given to you so that your Father in heaven is glorified. Yes, through provision, God is glorified, but is that the ultimate glorification of God? What is it that we're praying for? We look at it here and, and we have this. In chapter 5, we have the martyrs crying out, how long must we wait? And then here, John's writing, he says, there's right there at the, the altar, the prayers of all the saints. And they're adding the incense so that the smoke is rising. And now we see at the beginning of 8, through the prayer of the saints, the prayers of God's saints play a crucial part in the ushering in of the judgments of God. The prayers of the saints in conjunction with the fire of God is more powerful, more forceful than the dark and corrupt powers let loose in the world. More effective than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and it being cast upon the earth. If we as a body come together and we are praying for God's justice, God's righteousness to be made present today, how powerful would that be? It's kind of, it's kind of just thought of this, but it's kind of like the freeway. You have the carpool lane, but yet, and people work with other people, probably in the same neighborhood and everything else, but yet we are so individualized, we'd rather sit in an hour and a half of traffic so that we could be by ourselves than to share a car and get into the carpool lane. And sometimes Christianity is like that. I'd rather just be in my prayer closet. I'll pray you know, I have my relationship with God. You have your relationship with God. But that's not how God calls us to be. Yes, we have individual relationships and we walk it out individually, but corporately, we come together for the purpose of God. 
We come together to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to equip one another through the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Now, we're going to be starting in July when we do the, the, uh, the men's discipleship. We're going to have corporate prayer from 6.30 to 7.30 in the NPR. I want to invite everybody to come, that we together as a body can pray for the, the purpose of God that we can change this city, that we can change the culture of this state, of this country, of this world. It starts, a fire starts with just a spark. Let us be a spark. Let us be the people that God has desired us to be. So that brings us to the judgments of God. And I'm going to kind of go through these quickly, just for the sake of time, but when we come to the trumpets, they're divided into two sections. Trumpets one through four, and then five through seven. There are a few things I'd like to point out about the trumpets. First, they had a prominent role in signaling the alarm that battle was imminent. Either it would be against an enemy of Israel, an enemy of God, or in some cases it was actually against Israel as they were in sinful point with God. They became an enemy of God by their lifestyle. Either way, it was a call for intimate judgment. If, if we were to look at the account of Joshua and the Jericho wall, there were seven trumpets. For six days, they walked around, they blew a trumpet. Then on the seventh day, they walked around seven times, blew a trumpet, and shouted. In quite the same way, we have the same thing here. Six trumpets, and then there's the seventh trumpet, and that seventh trumpet is the one that knocks the wall down. Secondly, if one were to go back to the book of Exodus and study the account of the plague sent by God, as you see in these trumpets, you get about six or seven of the ten that are brought through. And what was the purpose of the plagues in Exodus? In Exodus 7, 1 through 5, it is recorded, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, and he will let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Did you hear that? I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. For when Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. The purpose of those judgments was that God would reveal and prove he is the one true living God. 
And what we see in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are judgments against an unbelieving world. In the same way that he came against Egypt, an unbelieving nation, he's coming against unbelieving people. Judgments that show his righteousness and his holiness. Thirdly, the trumpets are divided into two points. The first one dealing with nature, creation, and the last three dealing with man. Lastly, notice that none of these instances is their total devastation. There's partial. When you go through these six trumpets, he only speaks of a partial, which points to the fact that there will be in the future a complete judgment, a completion of what God is intending, final judgment. It's important to understand that everything that happens in this process proceeds by the hand of God. He allows all things to happen, for God is omnipotent, He is omniscient. There is nothing or no one who can overpower Him. Nor can anyone do anything without His knowledge of it happening. All these judgments either come from God or they are allowed by God. He does not cause sin, but He will allow it to run its course because of man's nature. As I said, trumpets 1-4 through deal with nature and the cosmos. And the question is, are we dealing with actual events in terms of being able to put a singular name on each judgment? Picking out something in history or something that is coming to happen? Or is it a principle that we can pull from? And when we're looking at it, you know, is there going to be an actual mountain crashing into the ocean? Is there going to be an actual is a star going to fall into the waters. And I say, no, they're more of a symbolic way that God is going to invoke judgment on the earth. And as you can see, that famine is a part of those first three judgments in Trumpet 1, 2, and 3. The mountain in the second trumpet is also looked at judgment against a nation. Because a mountain oftentimes is viewed as a nation. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah spoke of Babylon being a mountain and a stone being cast down. That's in uh, Jeremiah 51. And, you know, he was, in Jeremiah it was speaking of Babylon who had taken, Israel, taken Judah into captivity. And in this, could it be that the Roman Empire was a precluding to say that the Roman Empire was going to fall. I don't know. Therefore, the picture in Revelation 8 did not originate from an attempt to depict a literal volcanic eruption, as some would suggest, and this is the second trumpet, or some other natural catastrophe occurring in the first century or precated for later, a literal reading is rendered unlikely through the visionary section by the simple observation that the catastrophes are inspired primarily by Old Testament literary models that contain figures of speech. 
This does not mean that such models could not have been used to describe literal disasters as they very well may have been. But the intent is to give the reader of that time an understanding of what they were going through. Trumpet number three speaks of a a great star falling from the sky into the water and polluting them. But we don't have a record of a star in ancient times called Wormwood. But rather, Wormwood was used as a name in the Old Testament. It's actually a, a, a leaf. And the smallest amount of Wormwood can pollute... I think it was like an ounce of wormwood can pollute 500 gallons of water. You'd still be able to taste it. It's just you don't dilute it. And the fact that the sinfulness of man, God was coming and judging them. And one of the things that as I'm reading this, because he's saying it's a third, a third, a third, and we have a third of, of vegetation being taken away, which would be famine. Then we have a third of the ocean being hit. All the fish dying in that section. Whether it's a third or not, is whatever, but there's a portion. Famine. A star crashing down and polluting all the fresh water. So you have the salt water being polluted, now you have the fresh water being polluted. So now all of a sudden drinking water's being killed. Because you can't drink it. So now all of a sudden, judgment's coming down, and he's saying, I am going to remove all these things that your supply is dwindling because of your unbelief, because of the hardness of your heart. Then we have the fourth trumpet. We're talking about the, the cosmos. There's a darkening of the sky. Is that a literal thing? Or is it just an illustration of of what happens? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, they talked about the darkening of skies as as being chaos on the earth. That something was going on and and there was just chaos hitting the world. N.T. Wright, uh, because Jesus mentions the the darkening of the skies in Matthew 24, and N.T. Wright who many consider to be a modern-day uh, C.S. Lewis. But he wrote this in light of uh, Matthew 24. He says, In view of the many prophetic passages in which this type of language, meaning the darkening of the skies, denotes socio-political and military catastrophe, to insist at this time the words must refer to a physical collapse of the space-time world, this is simply a a way regular Jewish imagery is able to refer to major socio-political events and bring out their full significance. The dramatic and bizarre language of such apocalyptic writing is evident, not of paranoia or dualistic worldview, as it's sometimes anarchistically Suggested, but a creative reuse of Israel's scriptural and particularly prophetic heritage. In this manner, John is here predicting judgment upon an unbelieving world. It's interesting, though, when you look at the first four trumpets. I know I'm kind of scattering here, but it's 
for the sake of time, I want to kind of hit everything, kind of a shotgun. But uh, so my apologies on that. But it's interesting on the first four trumpets that deal with nature. They deal with vegetation, salt water, fresh water, the cosmos. And you look at the creation story and how it was created on the fourth day. You had the cosmos created, the sun, the moon, the stars. And in some ways... You had creation in Genesis. Now here in Revelation, you've got like a de-creation. It's breaking apart by God's judgment. Why? Well, at the end of time, what happens? We get a new earth and a new heaven. In order for there to be the new, God is taking away the old. So we have this de... What do they call that with the food when they... Deconstruction, thank you. And it's a deconstruction, really, of creation. The fifth trumpet, and trumpets five and, and, and six have so much. John paints such vivid pictures of what is going on. And it's an interesting thing because we start when we have this bottomless pit. And it's only mentioned two other places other than Revelation. In Luke 31, when Jesus, the demons were in the pigs, and they said, don't send us to the abyss. So the demons were in uh, uh, Legion, and he sends them into the pigs, and they go into the sea, because they didn't want to go into the abyss. And then Paul, in Romans 10, talks about it being the place of the dead. The only other place it's mentioned is here in Revelation. And from this pit, we get the arising of what? Locusts. And he details them very magnificently, really. And they are called and they said, you can go out and you can attack man. You can torment man, but you cannot kill him. Very much the same way when God was speaking to Satan and considering Job, he says, do whatever you want to him, but you cannot kill him. And that's kind of what he's saying to the, to the demons here. He's saying, you can torment, but you cannot kill. Locusts are a representation of God's judgment, as in the book of Joel because it speaks of their devastation and the carnage that is left behind. John seems to paint the same picture of utter pain and suffering for those who are afflicted by these demons. A famine of the soul, if you would. They wish to die, but they're unable to find relief. And you think about that. They wish... They, it was so... Painful, they wish to die, but they cannot. For some reason, they don't commit suicide, which would end their suffering. They're unable to. But John is saying that the pain is so great. And you think about those who do not know Christ. They are running after everything. There is a pain inside of them. There's only one way to relieve it. 
And that is through Christ. It is through the power of the resurrected Christ. Through the cross. They're suffering. They're running around looking at different religions, looking through drugs, relationships, alcohol. They're trying to find any, and other, any way that they can to ease the pain. To fill the emptiness that's there. But only God can fill that void. And it's saying, he's painting this picture But it's only... And you look at this, and there's this torment that's happening. And it's on earth that it's happening at this moment. But I want us, church, to, to realize something here. That those who do not know Christ, when they die, this torment is eternal. It's eternal for them. How often do we think about that when we see people and we know they're unbelievers? Do we think about that pain and that suffering for eternity for them? Do we kind of look as a judge, jury and judge, and say, oh, I hope they rot in hell forever? Or is our heart that of Christ that desires them to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Be willing to step out and speak of Christ to them. To speak life into the darkness. The sixth trumpet speaks of the death of man. To the Jew, he speaks of the Euphrates River and For the Jew, it was the northern frontier of Palestine across which the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians invaded. And they came and imposed their pagan sovereignty on the people of God. All the scriptural warning about a foe from the north therefore find their echo in John's blood-curdling vision. When they read that, to understand what was going to happen to the unbeliever, to those who were persecuting them. God is in control. God is sovereign. When you and I have suffering in our life, do we know that God is watching over us? Do we understand that God is ready to meet us where we are. There is no one who can overpower God. And if we are His, we are eternally secure. There's nothing nobody can do to separate us from the love of God. They speak of three plagues, fire, was it fire, hail, and brimstone. And Does that strike anything to you? It comes with judgment. Hail and brimstone came down in Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. There's judgment for sin. And he says that some will be killed. 
demonic host killing people. And if you look at it from a, a symbolic point, throughout time, we can see unbelievers, they're getting killed through pestilence, through famine, through disease, all sorts of ways, suicide, murder. <clears throat> it's interesting, though, because first he's talking about them dying. And then he uses a different word in 19, because he says the horsemen who are coming through and doing the, the killing. But then in 19, verse 19, he says that the horsemen are to do harm, which is the same Greek word that is used in verses 4 and 10 about the locusts who are only allowed to torment but not kill. So it could be possible, but the harm here is not physical death, but a variety of forms of spiritual, psychological torment with the emotional anguish that is cast upon the unbelieving world as it precludes to death itself. The worship team can come up. I know this was kind of a, a scattered teaching through these two chapters, but I wanted to get through it. And it's interesting because as we look back, coming back now to verses 20 and 21, it reminded me of a parable that Jesus shared. It was about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was at the gate all the time and had sores. The dogs would come and lick him. And one day Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. A short while later, the rich man dies. And he goes to Hades. And it's hot. Uncomfortable. Tormenting. And he looks up and he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, could you send Lazarus down with a cool cup of water? I'm, just, I'm dying here. I'm dying without dying. And he goes, we can't. There's a chasm. You can't cross it. And he's like, oh. Well, can you send Lazarus back down to Jerusalem? I've got brothers. Can you have them go and, and talk to them? And he goes, oh, they have Moses and the prophets. They have all that they need to understand God and life. And you know what? Because they have all that, and if they deny the very presence of, of the writings of Moses and the prophets, not even if one rises from the dead will they believe. Oftentimes, <clears throat> as, a, as the body of Christ we anticipate natural disasters, personal tragedies to be the cause of people to turn. But that may not be the case. We have to be proactive in our sharing of our faith. And I'm sure maybe you know some people that Say, well, I'm going to live like the devil and on my deathbed, then I'll accept Christ. I don't want to live by his rules and then 
I'll sneak in at the end. Well, the percentage of people who probably actually are able to do that is less than, you know, one gazillion percent. Because you've become so hardened and so callous through life of saying no to God that by that time, you're not going to all of a sudden say yes. And there is no assurity that you will even get to that point of being able to say that. Because we never know when we will die. As Christians, my prayer is that we're able to live a life that is above the, the noise of this world. That we're able to rise above the chaos. That we're able to rise above the hatred, the evil that, preclude, that, that, that just resides on the earth today. But that takes you and me surrendering to God allowing the Holy Spirit to live in us and through us and may our hearts be so inclined to share the gospel because God's judgment upon the unbeliever will be complete it will be full. But it will be righteous. It will be just. He will be glorified in his judgment because of man's unbelief. May we take this, put it in our hearts, that it may transform our minds, that we think as Christ thinks, that we speak the words of Christ. And people today who are under God's judgment will be freed and they will be drinking from the rivers of life. Revelation 7 talked about the river of water being one that brings forth life. Revelation 8 spoke of the river that is polluted, that brings forth death. Let us lead people to the river of life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and I know it was scattered in terms of going through the trumpets, going through your judgments. But I believe the, the importance is not so much in how you're judging, but that you will judge. That there will be those who die without knowing you that there'll be those who 
spend eternity in torment. That they do suffer the second death. A spiritual death. May we, as your children, filled with the Holy Spirit, the very power of creation, walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Taking that message of hope and of salvation to those who need it. May we live a life that is pleasing to you. That our life is a living sacrifice bringing up with it the aroma of pleasing you. This morning, Lord, may we walk anew. May we walk afresh in our life with you and with others. That you be glorified. Change our prayer, Father. That our prayer is about you being glorified. That you reign over this world. Usher in your kingdom on this earth. As it is in heaven, it is on earth. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.